0: Okay, so uh, my biggest challenge today is not to mix up my sermon and the class. Because uh, this, this is a new rhythm for me. I'm going to start in Genesis 1. And what I want you to see with one of the things that makes Christianity so unique, um, and I, I would argue different than the other great religions of the world, is Christianity always holds intention... The relationship between the general and the specific, the transcendent and the particular. So what I mean by that, um, Genesis 1, as we looked at last week in worship, focuses on the bigness of God and the splendor or the majesty of creation. Okay, so when you're following through Genesis 1, you pick up pretty quickly that it has this rhythm. Okay, it has a cadence. Uh, It really reads like a song or a poem. And you have this repetition of the phrase good in verse 4, in verse 10, in 12, in 18, in 21, and in 25, until you get to this critical moment in verse 24 of Genesis 1 when it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle, creeping things, wild animals of the earth of every kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God God saw that it was good. Now that's the last tov. Tov, T-O-V, that's the last Hebrew uh, generic phrase in Genesis 1. Then God said in verse 26, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the sea, over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. God blessed them and gives them this charge, right? And then it builds to verse 31. God saw everything God had made, and indeed it was very to It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So, at the very, there's, I mean, you could, you could do a hundred hours just on Genesis 1. But there is this movement from the general to the specific. And it starts, it starts in Genesis 1. So you go from this transcendent God who makes everything good, calls humans very good, and then in chapter 2 of Genesis you get to the specific and here's the tell here's the place that Genesis shows you this the word for God in Genesis 1 is the generic word for God Elohim it's translated in other parts of the Torah or the Old Testament just as God like G-O-D it could be gods the God the God of these people the tribal God of these people now clearly in Genesis 1 they're referring to the God of Israel. And we can talk about that later. But it moves to the specific word in Genesis 2. So this is 1, this is 2. And the specific word in Genesis 2 is Yahweh. Now, it doesn't say Yahweh in Genesis 2 in your translations. What does it say in Genesis 2? It's one of the first things that jumps out at you. You go from God to Lord. Lord God. So it's Yahweh Elohim. Um, Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I I had a rabbi teach me if you take the sacred name for God in Genesis 2, Yahweh, in Hebrew and you write it from top to bottom, we've actually done this in worship before. It literally forms the human body. So Jews have taught from the very beginning that when you bear the image of God, it's not just a spiritual uh, or uh, aesthetic Kind of teaching—it's a literal teaching that every human on planet Earth today is literally a walking extension of the God who created the whole thing. That's why it says, and God looked at humans and told them, He blessed them. He told them to be fruitful and to multiply. It doesn't just say, and God told the people of Israel, right? It doesn't just say, and those people who in two thousand years will become Jesus followers. They're charged with this. It says every human alive on planet earth bears the literal mark of God on their body. And they are to represent and steward. So that's the first tell. The second tell is that you go from planet earth, which I'll just abbreviate as P-E. And then in Genesis 2, you're not just on planet earth. Where are you in Genesis 2? Come on, Bible scholars. Who said it someone said it say it. the garden right so you go from here's this incredible thing called planet earth with aardvarks and giraffes and and rainbows and all of these crazy things that make up planet earth and then you get specifically in genesis okay no, no evidence of rainbow yeah right to the garden right specific. Um, now, in the garden, you have man formed out of the dust. So it's a different way of telling the Genesis 1 story. And then you have a woman taken from the side of man. The word, uh, the word that's used in Genesis 2 um, for the woman is helper, but the Hebrew word is the word ezer, E-Z-E-R. And I always remind my freshman students at Lipscomb, it does, the word ezer does not mean secretary. It doesn't. It means uh, it's it's the Hebrew idea of completion. Um, Every other time in the Torah, the Hebrew word for "there" appears, it's in reference to God. So it's this idea that just as God is incomplete without creation, the man is incomplete without the woman. So it's this uh, it's this idea of wholeness or completion or totality. Now they have the same mission that you see in Genesis 1, right? They're not just tending over the whole creation, they're stewarding the garden. They're called to care for, work together to steward the garden. That starts with the naming of the animals. Okay, and we know how the story goes. We know how sin and uh, the, the subtle crafty lies of the serpent is part of the story. But here's, what's, here, here's what I love about Christianity Judaism, and here's what I loved about being in Israel the Bible is always moving you from this general understanding of God to a specific understanding of God. And when it comes to the life of Jesus, this is what some uh, New Testament theologians call the scandal of particularity. Okay, so I want you to track with me really carefully for a second. Christianity says that God became a very particular person. In a very particular place who spoke a very particular language or languages who taught a very particular message the kingdom of god to a very particular relatively small group of people and at the end of his life after he had been killed and raised from the dead he gave them a very particular message and what new testament theologians call the scandal of particularity means Christianity is always tempted to become generic. That's why, for instance, Christianity so easily gets uh, stolen by politics. And that's not an American thing, by the way. Like, that's church history, (laughs) right? If you've ever read any European history, it makes us look pretty good. So it moves Christianity to always focusing on the particulars of remembering it's Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of whatever you want it to be. Does that make sense? So uh, Judaism and Christianity give us earth, soil, dirt, a tangible place to start from. So no matter where you are in your life, no matter where you live, uh, is culturally speaking or politically speaking, Christianity always calls us back to this very particular place in this specific moment in time. We may talk next week about why God chose the first century in Galilee to become uh, a human. A couple of other terms that you'll see uh, in theology that are important. Uh, the first word is theophany. Anybody remember that word from a Bible class you've had over the years? What's, what does theophany mean? Just break it into two parts. That's what you do with English words because they're all based on Greek words like politics it means god appearance okay you can't answer any more questions for the <laughs> so it means god shows up now what what are some of the most popular fascinating theophanies in the old testament that you can remember burning bush is one of the defining ones ten okay ten commandments is certainly a theophanetic manifestation that's probably the phrase you were going to use right theophanetic oh, Okay, so they're all over the story, right? And you you get used to these theophanies. But what separates Christianity from Judaism and where you start to see, I would call, a healthy tension between the mother faith and the faith that's kind of birthed out of Judaism, what you see is no one who understood theophany believed that incarnation was possible. incarnation creates a whole new category of theophany ok why bring up technical words like that because for, to Jews and to Muslims Christians are heretics to Jews and to Muslims we are heretics because we believe that God became flesh See at the basic levels of this kind of approach to religion Judaism and Islam have more in common on that front than they do with Christianity because we think we say God interrupted that divine principle there's only one God and he broke his own rule and he's still one but he's three have you ever tried to explain the trinity to an 8-year-old you end up getting like water and Kool-Aid and sugar like you, you know you like you're like it's like Three elements, but you put them all together and it's sweet. I don't know. I had a seventh grade teacher who tried that one time. Um, so again, you're moving from the generic to the specific incarnation. If you want to see how this looks in the Bible, this is how the Gospel of John starts out. right? John chapter 1 is Genesis 2.0. Any, anybody who read the Gospel of John in the year 95 or 105 or 120, When they hear, in the beginning was the, oh, they're like, I know this story. In fact, the Greek of Genesis 1, when Genesis 1 is translated into Greek a couple hundred years before Jesus, the Greek of Genesis 1, it's called the Septuagint, is eerily similar to the Greek of John chapter 1. Similar in a way that if you were a Jew, you would just know, oh, this is chapter 2 of this story that we're living in. But John chapter 1 doesn't stay in the general philosophical it moves to and the word became flesh and then by the end of John 1 in verse 45 you got people saying really Jesus is from Nazareth that's the first time we realize maybe Nazareth isn't a really impressive place Um, because we've moved from the generic to the specific so Let's talk a little bit about this specific place called Nazareth. Uh, and some of this, I'm, I'm going to build on what I did several weeks ago uh, in worship. Uh, Nazareth was a town at the time of Jesus of less than 500 people. Uh, you, you find some people say 200, some people say 500. The point was it was a small place. Um, how can we bring that map back up? We got it right here. Uh, so Nazareth was a small place we know Cana most famously because Jesus turned water into grape juice here you remember that story Uh, we know that site but Sepphoris was the big deal at the time we're going to talk about Sepphoris in a second uh, think about Nazareth like uh, if Murfreesboro was a tenth of the size that it is to Nashville Uh, Nazareth was feeding people into Sepphoris. Cana was feeding people into Sepphoris. Now, the reason we don't know much about Sepphoris, most of us who grew up in a church, is because Sepphoris is never mentioned in the New Testament. And so some of us grew up in a tradition that if it's not in the New Testament, why bother with it? But we're going to talk about that in a second. So Nazareth is a small town, less than 500 people. Uh, it's, It's known in history more for what it was close to uh, more than what it actually did or produce. Sepphoris, in contrast, was about a 50-minute walk from Nazareth. So a lot of people believe that Joseph's father, who's referred to as a tekton, which is like artisan, craftsman, some people think that means carpenter specifically, it could be like stonemason. Um, so many uh, scholars today believe that uh, Jesus' father Joseph worked in Sepphoris and then came home on the weekends, or did a big project, got paid, and then came back. And then, as Jesus and maybe James and some of the other uh, some of the other clan, uh, as they grow older, they do what most boys in the first century do—they do what their daddy did, right? And that's how we name name people. Now, Sepphoris, though, in contrast, uh, was a, was a huge place. There's arguments about their population. At this time, at the time of Jesus, but I love how one uh, New Testament scholar describes Sepphoris. He says Sepphoris was a rich, cosmopolitan, diverse city, full of Jews who'd become wealthy because of the Herodian Revolution. So essentially, what happened is uh, one of the Herods—they're uh, hard to keep straight—but one of the Herods decimated a whole population of religious and business leaders in Sepphoris, and then he allowed a whole new class to move in, and they were extremely loyal to Herod. So you already see a contrast, for instance, in the birth account in Matthew, with anybody who works for Herod or sides with Herod, and anybody who might show allegiance to the king uh, in the form of the baby Jesus. Um, so uh, Sepphoris today is known because of uh, some incredible work that was done there. They have an incredible gymnasium, an incredible library, they have a theater. Um, A lot of what we know about that part of Galilee in terms of technology, in terms of language, in terms of business, in terms of wealth, comparing it with Jerusalem, a lot of what we know about this part of Galilee is because of Sepphoris. Now, this is just a little aside, and you don't have to agree with me on this. As my grandfather likes to say, you have the right to be wrong. That's part of the American uh, culture, American DNA. But I think it's really interesting, if you can study this later, but in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and in Matthew 13, verse 55, this is when Jesus and his father are referred to as tectons, artisans, craftsmen. And the larger point, it seems to me, is not to know exactly, was Jesus a wood carpenter or was he a stonemason? The larger point is the scandal of particularity. And this is what I want to challenge you guys to think about. In American culture right now, there is a giant difference between saying and believing that there is a God who made the world, A, and B, The God who made that world that we live in and enjoy and love, oh, by the way, became a Jew in the first century in Palestine to a family that seems to be from a working class. There is a giant difference between getting someone to believe in an intelligent design or a cosmic power, cosmic force. And getting them to think that force that made the whole universe, right? This expanding universe that we live in. Uh, every time you watch something which shows you just the vastness of the universe, it either awes you or depresses you. Like there's no in between, right? That same God who made this giant universe. And we don't even know how many galaxies are out there. We can't even count the galaxies that are like the That God decided to interrupt his own creation by becoming a peasant in Palestine in the first century in Nazareth as a tecton. Are you with me? What I'm saying is it's easier to get people over here to say, I believe in intelligent design. I believe there's a creator. I mean, consider having children or just look at look at the order of things in creation but what I'm seeing is this large gulf now to get people from this side to say and I can make the leap to say this God who made the whole world is also the God who became Jesus and my concern is I don't think the church has respected how difficult that leap is for some people I've made that leap and I've looked back and said wow that. Uh, that's a formidable faith leap but uh, even in our church here in Otter Creek we've got people who look at the chasm between it and they say I respect Jesus I like Jesus I think he was a good guy but I don't know if I in fact I'm willing to bet right now you have children or grandchildren who fit in what I just described (laughs) you may just be realizing it today (laughs) sorry I didn't think about that Some Some of you have kids, grandkids who have given up on church. It's not just because they like the new songs or the old songs. That's all fluff. For a lot of them, it's because they can't make that leap. So one of the things I'm passionate about, and one of the reasons I will promote the Israel trip, unlike Randall said, he's not going to anymore, is I think being in these places helps us to shrink the gap between the God who made the world and the God who set in forth this historical revolution called the kingdom of God, which is undeniable in its power and its essence. And I think when you're in Jerusalem, I think uh, like I know some in this class just got back from a, a trip with Tim Woodruff to see Paul's journeys. I think when you're in places like that, It changes the whole way you read the Bible and the questions you ask. So what I'm saying is unapologetically, one of the reasons I care about this conversation is I think we have to do apologetics in a way we've never done it before. You cannot sit down and draw the chart with people anymore. I I was trained to do that in undergrad. You guys know what I'm talking about? Here's you. Here's God. Here's the bridge that you, it, I mean, I'm interested in things that work. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, I don't want to waste our time. So we have to do apologetics, meaning making the case for the credibility of Christianity. We have to be as creative with how we make the case as the society dictates. So you marry the story, but you date the method. Does that make sense? You're wedded to the story. I believe in the divinity of Jesus. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the resurrection. Those are non-negotiables. But, the method by which I try and convince people that that's the truest story that's ever been told. And by the way, if you debate, it's like, well, that's church history, that's what we've always done. So <laughs> you think they had film strips you know, in the dark ages? Like, at one point, film strips was Twitter, right? It was like cutting technology, <laughs> cutting edge technology. So you can argue whether you wanna believe it or not, but it's what we do. So being in these places helps shape just the dust getting the dust on your finger it shapes the way you think about this giant gulf that many feel between asserting there is a creator and the belief of Christianity that that be- creator became Jesus ok that's a big rock I just <laughs> threw in the pond thoughts, questions again you've got family that this is where they live so th- this is important to talk about what do, what do you think? Silence does not bother me.
1: <laughs> I, think, I just think you're right. I have these Matthews and stepsons that um, just don't, they're, they're no longer connected to our traditional belief in Jesus' and the Trinity's. There's just you no, know, maybe a lack of Holy Spirit enlightenment, but
0: they just don't, they don't deny a creator. On right. Right. Uh, go ahead Who? Yeah,
1: Josh I was just thinking you know, the, world, the way the world is revolving right now people just see that and the evilness that it's in our society and what's going on not just the politics but everything that's yeah. going on racial injustices and, and, and I, I think probably some people just think well how could God allow this to happen so they're, they're, it causes them to fall more distant because of everything that they're seeing in the world especially the youth and you know, they can't put their, wrap their minds around why is this happening and they became ingrained in the world in all the technology that we have available to us and it distracts all of us from yeah. the necessary uh, belief of who God is and we've stopped thinking about him yeah.
0: and so kind of my working uh, I'm an optimist at heart um, I think cynicism's too easy What I mean is, uh, how do I say this graciously? It takes no courage to be a cynic. It's like gossips, right? It takes no courage to be a gossip. You know what it does take courage? To keep your mouth closed. (laughs) Like it's hard to do it, right? So cynicism is the easy path. And one of the things I feel passionate about, and I think is very part of the Otter Creek DNA, is that we see this that you're describing? We see this as a unique moment in time for the church to respond faithfully, not as a, oh, it's all it's it's as bad as it's ever been. It's like, have you read the Bible? Like it's always been bad. <laughs> I don't think it's worse. I just think it's a new kind of worse. Like, but I see these uh, cultural challenges that we have as opportunities because the truth is Christianity globally is doing great. We've got to have a global perspective. Christianity in Africa is thriving right now. Christianity in Muslim parts of Africa is thriving right now. Christianity in Asia is thriving. You guys have heard me talk about this. Um, but when we think about our little plot of land called the US, it's so easy to be a cynic, uh, but it takes no courage. So can I put you on the spot? Tell tell us about Mars Hill. You got to...
1: So he was standing on a rock underneath the Parthenon where they used to kill people. So he was was able to turn and say, look.
0: To this unknown God.
1: It it really will uh, knock your socks off about how advanced that society
0: is. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot. That was great. Yeah. It, It seems that we're talking about Christianity around the world is growing so much that it seems like it's uh, an easier, it's easier for people with nothing before to to reach out to God and reach out to this versus folks who think they're God. Yeah, um, are so well educated that they. Are. I that's a such a profound. I read a story or a piece recently called "The Curse of Affluence." And one of the arguments this writer was making is uh, that there is a dark side to wealth that we don't talk about. Uh, Those of you in business, you know this better than I do. But when you look at uh, blue collar, white collar, no collar, like cycles of of wealth and and how that works. uh, I, I know this from growing up in Rochester Hills where Chrysler was headquartered the number of Chrysler executives who had their 22-year-old sons living in their basement smoking weed, like, was bl- it blew my mind. Like, they live in these incredible houses, and their kids are all the worse for it. I'm not saying it was all their fault. I get it's complicated, but uh, there is a dark side of affluence that we, we're not quite comfortable talking about in American culture, because I do think we have this in, kind of inherent belief that all wealth is positive. And if, you know, the story of Solomon and the story of, of Proverbs and the Psalms, we've gotta be more aware. So another thing, too, connected to that, um, when missionaries start coming from these other places to America, they are, that's the first thing they point out. So like, Christianity's really big in Kenya and South Korea. South Korea sends more missionaries around the world than any country per capita. And when the South Koreans come to New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco, like the really big cities, that's the first thing these missionaries point out is the greatest obstacle is affluence to get a hearing for the gospel. Um, Okay, back to Nazareth. So today, you've heard me talk about, some of you heard me talk about this. Today, there are 80,000 people living in Nazareth. 60% of Nazareth today is Muslim, which blew my mind when we were there to (laughs) learn that. Uh, 40% right 40% is Christian 40% is Christian there are no Jews so none of Jesus's people are still in Nazareth uh, which there's a whole uh, whole set of conversation with that here's what we know about Nazareth from the Bible we know number one that it was the undisputed hometown of Jesus Matthew says this Luke says it multiple times but we also know that it was a place of questionable reputation, meaning you didn't impress people by telling them you were from, as I like to joke, buck snort. Uh, my brother Scott Westerman has heard me say this a few times, and I found a uh, life is good in buck snort hat on my truck recently that Scott, Scott gifted me with, uh, which is his way of saying I love you, Josh. Um, so we know it was a pl- uh, John 1, 45, I referred to earlier, was a place of questionable Reputation. We also know from three places in the Gospels that they rejected Jesus, and it's chronicled in Mark 6, in Matthew 4, and Luke 4. And I want to show you the Luke 4 story real quick. How are we doing on time? Good. Eight minutes. Eight minutes. Okay, I gotta hurry. So Jesus is rejected in Mark 6, Matthew 4, and Luke 4 by his own people. And I just want to show you this story very quickly. Uh, Some of you have done careful studies of Luke, so I'm going to skip some really big things. But just know I know I'm skipping big things. So the the fourth chapter starts with Jesus being led into the wilderness by what power? The Spirit, not Satan. That's like central to the whole story, right? It's the Spirit that tests. It's Satan that tempts. So when Jesus endures his temptation... He is literally reenacting the story of Israel in the desert. This is Israel 2.0. To go into the desert to find out who are you really. And then God is going to figure out who he is really and then bring them back into the mission. It's Exodus all over again. And Jews would have seen that in the first century. So he's led by the Spirit. um, And then in verse 14, after he's endured all this, Luke says, Jesus filled with the power of the Spirit. Returned to Galilee, and a report him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues, which, P.S., is the coolest part I think about being in Israel. You get to stand in these synagogues that Jesus taught in. And he was praised by everyone except his own people. So this is how the story goes in verse 16. He comes to Nazareth, he goes to synagogue, it's Sabbath. He reaches out and finds the place in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 65. And he quotes Isaiah 65. You know this. Many of us memorize this as children. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jubilee language. And scholars argue about how much was Jubilee practiced But Jesus is reclaiming this jubilee principle from the Old Testament for the kingdom that he's embodying. And then Jesus rolls up the scroll. It's like a mic drop, right? He gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and they began to say, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said about Jesus... Is this not Joseph's son? Right. How could a guy who's the son of a tecton be so eloquent? It, it was supposed to be a compliment, but it was, also, <laughs> it was also a slam. We do this all the time, right? We slam and compliment people at the same time. And then Jesus says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. It feels like Mars Hill. They're going to kill him. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Okay, so here's my one basic question. We're in Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. He's starting to become this popular guy. He goes back to his hometown. Everybody's excited. Did you hear who's here? Did you hear who's here? He finds the scroll of Isaiah 65. He reads from it. And their first initial response to Jesus being back in Nazareth is what? They're proud of him, right? This is our guy. Jesus should have just quit. That should have been his conclusion, right? Preachers never know when to stop. (laughs) We just keep going. So then he talks about Elijah and Elisha and Israel and Syrians. And it says they were filled with rage. So my question is, what did Jesus say that made them so upset that it wasn't just that they wanted him to leave? It wasn't just that they disagreed with him. They went from being proud of their guy to let's kill him.
1: What was he saying
0: to you? He was saying the kingdom is not what you, what you think the kingdom is going to be. Okay. The kingdom is not what you think it's going to be. What else do you think he might have been saying? I to
1: save you. I came to save people that are the downtrodden the widows.
0: Okay. So he's shifting the camera focus. But, the, but in Nazareth, you're saying they were the downtrodden too, right? Right. So this is the this is the uh, surgically prophetic part of Jesus that's very difficult. They yeah, Vicky. Yeah, so if I put all three of those together, here's how I would say it: If you grew up in Nazareth, you had an inferiority complex. Anybody grew up in a place where you know what that looks like? Okay, I wasn't gonna say okay, McMinnville, right? You haven't it. When when anybody learns that I grew up in East Detroit, nobody goes, "Oh, I've heard that's a beautiful place." (laughs) Oh, I know a lot of people who are moving there no one ever says that (laughs) everyone knows someone from Detroit Like you got out as quick as you could when you grow up somewhere where you have a chip on your shoulder that becomes the way you see the world so to Paige's point Jesus knew he was back in his small little town they could not get over the fact that one of their guys was becoming a big deal they were genuinely from the heart proud because of how they saw the world, right? It's like if Peyton Manning was from McMinnville. He could be mayor of that town. His grandkids could be mayor of that town, right? So they... Yeah, that, okay. You'll, you'll have to explain who that, who that is to me later. But. So when he says to them, you think that there are outsiders and insiders and that there is a hierarchy of haves and have-nots, you think that you're the last on the rung of have-nots. And I'm telling you, there are even people in the world who have it harder than you do, and the kingdom of God starts with them. And what, what they're responding to is, no, like, Nazareth is the hardest place to be from. We're the ones who they say, we talk with a twang, and we've got an accent, and we go to school and don't have shoes like we're the ones who they say that about we don't care about no Syrians and yet Jesus takes this ancient passage to Vicki's point in Isaiah 65 and he says these ancient texts are still alive and now I'm going to deal with them so I think and this is where we'll end I think Nazareth is an archetype it's a metaphor it's a reminder that if you have ever felt invisible, small, insignificant, redneck, ghetto, dumb, last, boring, inferior, disappointment, if you've ever felt that or someone's ever said that about you, it's not that Jesus dismisses that, but he says, you're not alone. You're not the only one. And God's movement in the first century wasn't going to start in Jerusalem It was gonna start with these people. So let me end with a story and maybe this will make sense. At least it makes sense to me. Uh, Every time I think about Nazareth, I think about my dad's father. My dad's father, his name is James Graves, J.V. Graves. He's still alive, he lives just outside of Detroit. He is from Brushy Pond, Alabama. Does anyone know where Coleman, Alabama is? Okay, Brushy Pond is a suburb of Coleman, Alabama. Uh, all of our family, extended family, still lives there. There's graves for miles, uh, and they don't particularly care for one, another. <laughs> one another. Uh, I understand Hatfields and McCoys better now because of the family stuff, and it mostly has to do with Baptist versus Church of Christ. But that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother story. But I'll never forget one time uh, I was in high school, and. I was uh, staying with my grandparents for the weekend, I'm very close with my dad's parents, and I caught my grandfather reading his New Testament, meaning he wasn't doing it so that we would see him, he was off in his own little room reading. Now, my grandfather's not a reader, He he doesn't read well. He dropped out of school in the eighth grade, I asked my grandmother, she said he probably reads at about a fifth or a sixth grade level. So it's not that he doesn't want to, but it's a very uh, humbling or it's a reminder to him of what he missed out on. He feels ashamed. So the fact that I, we caught him reading was very unusual. And I asked him what he was reading. And he said, I'm reading my favorite part of the New Testament. Grandpa, what's your favorite part of the New Testament? He said, I'm reading the book of Romans. Now, at that time, in high, it's hard to get a high schooler interested in Romans, right? Maybe the Gospels, maybe the... Pro- so I was genuinely curious. I said, what, what do you love about Romans so much? And he said, and I quote, I still can't believe that a God who made the whole world could love someone like me. Now, I grew up, as the saying goes, born on third base and thought I hit a triple, right? Like my generation is, how could, not, how could God not love us? Like, look, look at all we're doing. And that took me into a window of his soul that I never understood until that moment. The gospel first reaches people who think they're unworthy. The gospel first reaches people think, who think we're the last place God would stop if God would visit planet Earth. Nazareth is an archetype, and it's a reminder, and I'm convinced it's why the early church insisted on remembering that he's not just Jesus the Christ, he's also Jesus of Nazareth. I'm convinced the early church would not let that phrase go because they knew that the essence of Christianity is tied to that kind of deep, robust humility. And when you start to part ways with that kind of humility, where my grandfather would read Romans and say, I can't believe a God who could make this world would love someone like me. When you start to leave that, Christianity becomes all these other weird, twisted interpretation of the original. Are you with me? Um, By the way, the reason my grandfather did not finish eighth grade, his father died. Both of my grandfathers lost their fathers in their teen years. Randall, you lost your father when you were a young young boy. Fletcher Shrigley lost his father when he was a young boy. Um, And that so radically shaped him that he was, and, and not everyone in his family went the Jesus path, but he was so hungry to hear that affirmation that this is my son with whom I am well pleased that even to this day at 89 years old, Underneath this kind of thick skin and, and, and a really gruff person is probably the softest, gentlest human I know. Uh, I would way rather have to depend on forgiveness from my grandfather than my grandmother, if you know what I'm saying. Like,
1: <laughs> I'm,
0: af- I'm still afraid of my grandmother. <laughs> uh, that's Nazareth. That's where the gospel starts. And I would argue that's where it starts today and that's why it's taking off in Africa. That's why it's exploding in South America. Because there are people who feel that. If God were to visit us, this is, where, this is who God would care about. Let's pray. God, we thank you in Jesus' name uh, for this day. Uh, we thank you for our humble attempts to open up Scripture and to apply them to our lives. And God, I pray that anything I've said that's not from you would fall to the wayside. And I pray that anything that I've said today that is right from your heart would go deeply into the soil of our heart so that we might take seriously how we live this out in our marriages, in our families, in our work, in our schools, in this city that we love, and in this country that we love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: know they were going to react that way. He had to know that the things he was about to say, yeah. they would react that way. Yeah. It's almost as if he instigated that. Like, yeah. Why did he, if, if he cares about if Jesus is all things to all people yeah. and he cares about them too, why would he not present that in a way that they could understand yeah. and then have a different reaction? Why would he almost meaningfully instigate them to that kind of thing? Yeah.
0: So the, the top reason is Jesus comes out of the prophetic tradition. Yeah. So he didn't see himself as a pastor first, okay. like I would. He sees himself as a prophet like Isaiah, I'm going to speak the
1: truth, and you have to deal with it. And and you have to deal with it. Yeah.
0: Um, but number two, I also think he was playing the long game. Yeah. He knew that wasn't going to be his last
1: interaction with them.
0: Uh, and also, number three, this is a very Old Testament idea. The prophets understood that if you, one of the ways you show people you love them is to fight against them. Yeah. So his uh, antagonism, because a lot of times he does do that with people, right? Especially those who are sick, those who are poor. He rarely goes after those people. Rarely. Uh, But I think he understood that Judaism had become so entrenched in terms of moral purity and being right. That it was like trying to block, uh, chip away ice. And he knew if I don't just go in there and just,
1: just, yeah crush it. Yeah, you got to break some eggs. uh, I got to break some eggs. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And that's part of his prophetic ministry that
1: we'll claim is like, oh, I love how
0: Jesus is like that. He would be like that towards me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There there are some elements that you see that Jesus do and you go, gosh, I would be heartbroken if you spoke to me that way. Like, the guy who laid by the, the pool uh, for, like, 20 years, yeah. and he didn't get in to he get healed by the, the angel him. water. Yeah. yeah, and he's, like, he, he, he kind of reprimanded him in front of people. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's, yeah. she want to tell that was me. me. Like, that guy is really emotionally damaged. He doesn't think he can get in the pool to get healed. Like, why would he kind of reprimand him? Sorry. There, there's that side to, to Jesus You're like, oh, man, that's... That's right. Edges. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, so, but I think
0: fundamentally... He saw himself as a prophet like Isaiah. Yeah. Isaiah is the one he quotes the most in all four Gospels. More than any other part of the Bible, he quotes Isaiah. So I think he saw himself in the, uh, like in 50 years, what a, an up and coming black actor might think. They might think they're like Denzel Washington 2.0. American. He saw himself as Isaiah mixed with Moses.
1: Everything you just said is so poignant. It's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm a to leader for you guys. We're yeah. studying John. And you can watch the first two chapters, the first four chapters of John. Yeah. And everything you just said is in the first four chapters. Of, but even the first people that the first person that Jesus really ministers to is the woman at the well. Yeah.
0: And the very she's next person, the first church planter in the whole gospel. That's right.
1: Time. And in, in fact, uh. She went into the town and told all her friends to come back. Yeah. And he stayed two extra days. And his disciples said, "We gotta, we gotta get back to Jerusalem." He goes, "Why?" He said, "This is where, this is where we need to harvest here. right here." The very next person he ministers to is a Roman centurion. The very next person. And I was watching. We were talking about this with the governor of and like, you know, we're asking these questions, like, why all these Jews think they're all, like, hey, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go to, let's go to the, uh, the synagogues, let's go to these places. He's like, no, this is where it is. The first people was, you know, the who's the most unworthy, and then a Roman centurion who everybody hates. It's pretty crazy stuff. You don't get it until you go to... It. So, me and Tim about have been in Galilee. Yeah. And I walked around. All this place is so small. Yeah. It's the middle of nowhere. These are like, it's like little campsites. Yeah. If you went to camping, and I, I was just imagining that's these little funny. villages. My life yeah. the Bible, in America, everything's just fed up. I imagine when Jesus went to Jerusalem, it's like we took a road trip to Utah or something. Right. And it's not. When he goes like, let's around... Go over to Smyrna. Like, right. That's right. When he goes around the lake, it's he can literally travel a day, a little day trip to go to... Did they tell you when you were in Galilee? Did you go in the middle yeah. of the Sea of Galilee? We did. Yeah, we went. We went did from. Did they do that thing where they're like, okay, eighty percent of the stuff is happen and so well, like stand behind one no. side of the. Building. But we 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 said to Kabbots where.